This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. Today is Tuesday, the 14th of May. I do hope that you've had yourself a good day so far. If not, we're here to turn those frowns upside down and ensure that you stay informed with all things with regards to Africa. You're listening to Channel Africa, where we always give you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're available online on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi, and in studio with me, I have Tracy Boomgard and Neto Chimani. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. All eyes are now on South Africa's incoming president, to who he will appoint into his new cabinet. Sudan's state prosecutor charges toppled uh, President Omar Hassan al-Bashir with offences of killing more than 60 people during four months of demonstration. In economics, an economist warns that unemployment will continue to worsen in South Africa if the government does not change its policies. And lastly, in sport, head coach of Kenya men's national football team sticks to his guns as he names his provincial squad for the 2019 Africa Cup of Nations tournament. Right now, it's time for us to cross on over to the news desk where Tracy Boomgard is standing by to let us know what is happening in the world of news. Thank you, Samora. Sudanese Rapid Support Forces and police have used tear gas to disperse dozens of protesters in the capital Khartoum. They have also removed barriers that the protesters had set up on a main street in the capital. The ruling Transitional Military Council has repeatedly warned against blocking routes. This as it remains locked in negotiations with the opposition over a proposed joint civilian-military body to oversee the running of the country. It is unclear as to when former Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir will appear in court on charges of inciting and participating in the killing of more than 60 people during four months of demonstrations in the capital Khartoum. Also unclear is whether al-Bashir will appear before a civilian or military court. Al-Bashir is also wanted by the International Criminal Court for War Crimes, Crimes Against Humanity and Genocide. However, the Military Council says it will not hand the former leader to the Hague-based International Criminal Court. James Shimanula reports. Latest reports from Khartoum say the Military Council is still discussing with the leaders of demonstrators on the formation of a new government as spokesman for the Council, Shams al-Din al-Kabashi explains in Arabic. We have reached an agreement on most demands presented in the document that contains names of military and civilian officials. We are trying to find a solution to the remaining demands. A soldier who was wounded in Monday's assault in a high security prison in Niger has died of his wounds. Kutukele Prison holds the country's most dangerous detainees. Following the attack, security forces discovered an abandoned rocket and ammunition. Two vehicles belonging to Doctors Without Borders was also recovered. There are serious divisions among Zimbabwe legislatures over the maintenance of peace and audible. The new bill is meant to replace the controversial Public Order and Maintenance Act. Some expressed concern, saying the new bill contains old repressive clauses. 
ZANU-PF legislators supported the bill. Zimbabwe Lawyers for Human Rights researcher MacDonald Moyo expressed his concern. We uh, express concern with Clause 7 of the bill. It does not necessarily replace, but it is the same thing as Section 25 of the Principal Act. Although the section that the police must notify, uh, this uh, provision has in the past it's been misinterpreted to say that the police they are being asked for permission, thereby giving too much powers to the police to prohibit pro, uh, protests, which is a limit that is not justifiable in terms of Section 85 of the Constitution. Only the court can make limits on uh, constitutional rights. Police in Sri Lanka have declared a nationwide curfew for a second night running. This after one man was killed, dozens left homeless and mosques damaged in anti-Muslim riots. Police say the northwestern province, which is the most affected, will have a longer shutdown. The government has issued a text message to citizens announcing the curfew. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. Starting off in South Africa at the moment, where all eyes are now on South African President Cyril Ramaphosa on who he'll appoint into his new cabinet following the May 8th general elections. Political analyst Professor Dirk Kotze says Ramaphosa will have a reduced cabinet and also in a way that will enable him to control the ministers in order to deliver on all of his promises. Ramaphosa is expected to be sworn in on the 25th of this month and is expected to appoint cabinet on the 26th. There's pressure for Ramaphosa to appoint a clean cabinet, and here is Professor Dirk Kotza explaining. Well, first of all, I think what he suggested uh, in his State of the Nation address earlier on is that the cabinet will be smaller than the current one that consists of 35 ministers and uh, quite a number of deputy ministers, more more than that. So in total, there are more than 70, the cabinet plus the deputy ministers consists of more than 70 persons, and his intention is to produce that. This, the second important consideration is, is that um, every, most people expect that he should compose it in such a way that he will have very much control over government. Um, because currently there are some ministers who come still from the Zuma era and who he felt he couldn't leave out uh, when he reconstituted the, the cabinet um, early last year when he took over as the national president. But this time, with his own mandate after the election, um, he will in a better position to actually build a team around him, which is very much his own uh, choices, and not so much those from President Zuma. So I think those those are some of the main considerations that he will take into account when he will uh, select his ministers. What is the likelihood of a cabinet that is rich of women in terms because there are people that have been disappointed by some appointments in the premiership. What are the chances of that happening and also what are the chances of having a youth younger uh, representatives in cabinet and also in the premier in the uh, cabinet and ministers and also women. What are the chances of this happening? Well in the case of women there's quite a number of women in, uh, in, in the cabinet. The one of uh, previous presidents, President Tombeki, started to introduce many more women. 
that was followed by President Zuma. He also included a, a large number of women. And uh, President Ramaphosa will definitely continue with that. So that is, in, in, I think there's a better representation of women. There's a higher percentage of women in cabinet who have been in the past. Um, and that I, my expectation is that that will continue. With respect to young persons, um, you know, I guess what one can expect some as deputy ministers, ministers, but not as ministers. Um, ministers is a post with that requires a lot of expertise uh, and experience, political experience especially. So it's not yet ready for young persons. Um, we've seen in the past, like for example, that former presidents of the ANC's Youth League have been appointed, Fikilian uh, Belula, Malusi Kigaba, and some other members of the Youth League, but they normally started as deputy ministers and didn't become immediately ministers. Um, and I think that pattern will continue. Do you think that he will, uh, like the other president, pick uh, people that will actually assist him, that will enable him to uh, deliver on the promises that he made uh, before the election so that he is able to turn around the economy and look into other issues that are plaguing the country? Well, that will be his point of departure. Um, I think only after that, uh, as another consideration will be is what are the political considerations um, of persons, for example, representation per province, that there must be a spread across different provinces, Not that not all the ministers come from one or two provinces. Uh, there will also then, as we talked about, there will be considerations about gender, there will be considerations about uh, age, about the different age groups um, um, in it. So these will be considerations, plus in organizations or elements like, for example, the Women's League, that some of that they are represented, that the Communist Party will be represented. In the past, there was also a place created for Kusatu to have a minister, Ibrahim Patel, in, in, uh, in the cabinet. So these will all be considerations that will be taken into account. But ultimately, I think this first consideration will be Who's going to be the persons who are most or are best suited to be able to deliver the goods um, as a minister? Who have all the managerial skills? Who have the political weight? Who have the um, the expertise, the political expertise, as well as, as as experience in order to play that role? And that was Professor Dirk Kotzer, professor in political sciences at the University of South Africa, on the line talking to Tutong Beni. Sudan's state prosecutor has charged toppled President Omar Hassan al-Bashir with offences of killing more than 60 people during four months of demonstration in the capital Khartoum. The charging of al-Bashir comes at a time when armed men wearing military uniform are reported to have killed six demonstrators camping outside army headquarters in Khartoum. James Shimanyula prepared the following report. Sudanese President Omar Hassan al-Bashir faces charges of inciting and participating in the killing of 60 people that staged the demonstrations in the capital Khartoum over the past four months. The charges have been prepared by Sudan's state prosecutor. However, the prosecutor has not disclosed the date that al-Bashir is expected to appear before court. Also unclear is whether al-Bashir will appear before a civilian or military court. A statement released by the Prosecutor General's office in Khartoum says, and I quote, 
The prosecutor has recommended the speeding up of investigation into the killing of demonstrators, end of quote. Already, El-Bashir has been charged with money laundering. Intelligence sources say El-Bashir has disclosed the names of other people involved in the criminal activities. It may be important to point out that El-Bashir is also wanted by the International Criminal Court for war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. The military council that seized power after demonstrators forced the fall of El-Bashir says it will not hand over the former strongman to the Hague-based International Criminal Court. As has been said at the beginning, El-Bashir faces criminal charges related to the killing of 60 demonstrators. The question that comes to mind is whether he is to be taken to court now. Ghazi Salahuddin Ataban, leader of Sudan Reform Now Opposition Party, provides the answer. I haven't had the solid information. Latest reports from Khartoum say the military council is still discussing with the leaders of demonstrators on the formation of a new government as spokesman for the council, Shams Al-Din Al-Kabashi explains in Arabic. We have reached an agreement on most demands presented in the document that contains names of military and civilian officials. We are trying to find a solution to the remaining demands. That was the spokesman for Sudan's military council, Shams al-Din al-Kabashi. As Kabashi concluded his remarks, Ghazi Salahuddin Ataban, leader of Sudan reformed now opposition party, amplified on the discussions that are taking place between leaders of the demonstrators and the members of the military council. We are still uh, discussing some of the points that would uh, mark the beginning of uh, the transitional period, that is the formation of the presidential council, uh, the cabinet and the legislative council. It seems they have made some progress in those areas. They have, I think, agreed on the percentages to be shared in the presidential council, which is the Supreme Body. And uh, I guess they might have also reached an agreement on a cabinet, executive council. But uh, they haven't as yet reached a final deal. And uh, they are setting up the pressure on both sides. Now, we've seen the protesters staging demonstrations in the, in the evening, and they are actually not very far from the headquarters. The headquarters that Ataban is referring to is the military headquarters in Khartoum, where demonstrators have been pitching camp over the past four months. Still on the issue of whether or not an agreement has been reached by the two sides, Ataban had this to say. They may have reached this agreement, but uh, obviously the protesters are not satisfied. Meanwhile, from Khartoum comes another report that one of the six people killed last night when armed men wearing military uniform fired into a crowd was an army major. His name was, however, not disclosed. The attack on demonstrators, according to Sudan State Television, was condemned by head of the military council, Abdel Fattah Ali Burhan. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango.
Channel Africa Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundé. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. Just something to show you that we are all around Africa in many different languages. The time is now 17.16 Central African time. You are still listening to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa with myself, Samora Mangesi. Right now we move to Zimbabwe where legislators on Tuesday exhibited serious divisions during a meeting in Harare meant to unpack the maintenance of peace and order bill. The bill is meant to replace the Controversial Public Order and Maintenance Act, otherwise known as POSA, a law that has been known for being repressive. However, various players raised concerns as the new bill contains old repressive clauses, yet it is supposed to be democratic and uplift citizens' freedoms and rights. ZANU-PF legislators supported the bill while those in the opposition expressed concern. Simon Muchema reports from Harare. The Zimbabwean government is in the process of amending laws previously regarded as repressive and retrogressive. One such law is the Public Order and Security Act, POSA, which will soon be replaced by the Maintenance of Peace and Order, a new law that is still in the state of a bill. Ahead of some public hearings with regards to the new law, legislators convened a meeting in the capital Harare Tuesday to unpack the new law. During the meeting, legislators were evidently divided on party lines regarding the bill's contents. The program is funded by the Southern African Parliamentary Support Trust, whose director, Israel Chilimanzi, had this to say. Uh, in our view as funders, what is important is we do not just go through the motions. Uh, I think where we talk of consultation with the public, where we talk of engagement with stakeholders, it is important that we go beyond uh, the, just the very process of consulting, but ultimately the law that is ultimately passed uh, is consistent with the tenets of good law. So I'm hopeful that uh, this exercise which starts today, which will ultimately see public hearings being rolled out, uh, will ultimately uh, result in a law, in a statute uh, which is consistent with the tenets of good law. Amid the fighting, legislators were urged to read and understand the bill ahead of the public hearings. Retired Brigadier General Levy Maishlome, chairperson of the Defense and Peace Parliamentary Committee, said. It is only when you understand what you understand, the clauses yourself, can you listen and understand what the public's contributions will be. I'm sure we'll all pay attention to the law behind the bill, not the politics, because we are not here really to look at the politics. We are here to look at the law and the objective and the intention. See no evil and hear no evil is the concept the government is using in addressing the country's security. The secretary in the Home Affairs Ministry, Melusi Mashinga, indirectly said. The amendment to the Act is premised on two principal issues. One is the constitutional provision. That is to bring it in harmony with the constitution of the country, which is the supreme law of this particular country. Secondly, it is also in compliance of a constitutional court judgment, which sought to expunge or remove certain provisions of the Act which were deemed to be, let's um, say, repugnant, general feeling, let's say, natural justice, in terms of what our laws should be. Zimbabweans who have so far read the bill are concerned the country could be sliding backwards instead of democratizing 
its society a rare based legal analyst rumbizai venge said I, I feel that there are several aspects that were um, entrenched in the previous bill being posa that are almost regurgitated in uh, the new bill. It was a little bit disconcerting because it basically looks like it's a reproduction of, of everything else uh, apart from Section 27 uh, that was repealed by way of, of a court judgment. So there are a few issues that, uh, that do crop up and it's a little bit concerning because it seems as if, if this bill is passed in its presence, state into an act of parliament that we're almost creating a, a state of, of a permanent uh, emergency almost by empowering the police and ultimately contravening a lot of rights that are espoused in the constitution. From year 2003 when POSA came into effect, Zimbabwe made headlines for its heavy-handedness against the opposition and protesters. A number of people died or were injured as a result of attacks by the members of the police. The West was witnessed on the 1st of August 2018 and in January this year as youth protested against a sharp fuel increase. Zimbabwe lawyers for human rights researcher McDonald Moyo expressed concern during the Tuesday meeting. We uh, express concern with Clause 7 of the bill. It does not necessarily replace, but it is the same thing as Section 25 of the Principal Act. Although the section that the police must notify, uh, this uh, provision has in the past it's been misinterpreted to say that the police they are being asked for permission, thereby giving too much powers to the police to prohibit pro, uh, protests, which is a limit that is not justifiable in terms of Section 85 of the Constitution. Only the court can make limits on uh, constitutional rights. In Arare, Zimbabwe, for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. Nigeria is by far the most populated black nation on earth with a self-estimate of about 198. There is evidence that the increase not being coupled with equal level of development and economic strategies may have to wait on the rest of the world for food support. This is because even as the population is growing, there is a potent danger which is affecting agricultural activities in the country to the extent that farmers are afraid to venture into the fields because of terrorist activities which has climbed to an alarming rate in recent times. Collins Atohengbe reports. The waiting game has kept locals at just a few meters outside their doorsteps, not knowing what fate awaits them should they venture into the fields to engage in farming. While that lasts, human conjugal activities remain constant and cries of newborns are heard within earshots at the internally displaced persons camp. The birth may not have been registered because such is the case in remote communities or in places that are under the siege of insurgents. From a modest figure of 88 million in 1991, Nigeria has moved up the ladder to 198 million in 2018, courtesy of the National Population Commission. While the United Nations Funds for Population Activities, UNFPA, says Nigeria is already 201 million in estimation. Dr. Alex Uriri, an expert in demography and lecturer on population issues at the University of Lagos, says what is most worrisome is the growth rate. We are not even concerned about the absolute number of population. The major problem that brings to question the population dilemma is the rate of growth, which is about 3.3 now, and the momentum created by the age structure, the young population that we have. We are supposed to conduct a census destinially. That characteristic of periodicity, we defy it in Nigeria, and that makes us a laughing stock because we tend to operate 
at the level of theater of absurdities. The president of the Nigerian Society of Gynecologists and Obstetricians, Dr. Oluwaruti Miyakinola, says why there is poor social education on the issue of contraceptives and family control strategies. There is the need for Nigeria to immediately commence public awareness before things get out of hands. A family of four children is large now for most of being people. That's because you're thinking of school fees. You're thinking of how to train those children. But uh, unfortunately, the family planning acceptance, that contraceptive prevalence rate in Nigeria is very, very low. The truth really is that it is mandatory now that we must really revisit the issue of family planning. Though growth is real, but there is added problem of lack of necessary education, Dr. Alex Ruri says the figure branded by the UNFPA is a reflection of the failure of the Nigerian authorities which has no accurate figure to rely on and now depend on guest figures from the former level of estimations. There is a huge population with low quality education. It brings to mind the fact that uh, the effective population needs to be managed and it brings to mind the issue of the politics of numbers that is irrevocably linked with the politics of power. So this figure of 201 is an indictment on the leadership of the country and the National Population Commission. We don't know our numbers and it's a pitiable situation. We've moved from the pitiable state of mere estimates to a place of guesstimate, just guesses, and a country that fails to plan, plan to fail, that is the implication. The most fatal living fear now is that Nigeria may face food crisis occasioned by the activities of insurgents, which not only kill and kidnap people, but also destroy food reserves of the community they attack. And because of the fear of being killed or kidnapped, farmers now dread going to the field with the consequences of a looming poor and inadequate harvest and food shortages. James Sarko, an official of the Nigerian Farmers Association, says Farmers are dislodged from their farm, courtesy of insurgency and crisis with leaders, and productivity is grossly reduced. Women who form the bulk of the farming population in northern Nigeria expressed their fear and anxieties when going to cultivate the land as at previous times. We they fear to go farm now because of uh, kidnappers. Now, last year, like this, I don't uh, clear my farm. But this year, I they fear to go the farm. Now, it may be as you day here now, if you cannot move. There's nobody can feel happy because everybody they fear. This fear is a concern to the United Nations as well, which has been supporting Nigeria and other starving nations. The scribe of the world body, Antonio Guterres, says the United Nations will employ modern technology and strategy to produce enough food to feed the world population, especially in places where human activities like conflicts is very endemic. We are today here all together because we are committed to a world without hunger. These very basic goals should be within our grasp. But sadly, arrowing images of parents holding their malnourished children, helpless in the face of tragedy, are not consigned to history. Last year, more than 20 million people across northeastern Nigeria, Somalia, South Sudan and Yemen faced a serious threat of famine. Thanks to rapid action, we averted the worst in those four countries. But after years of progress on anger, we are now losing ground. The number of undernourished people is rising to more than 120 million in 2017. There are many reasons for this reversal, including spreading conflict, growing inequality, and the impact of climate change. And so our response to this growing hunger crisis must be multifaceted from prevention and humanitarian action to sustainable development. 
targeting women for support has a significant impact on the food security of entire families and communities. Development strategies has not been in short supply in Nigeria, but poor implementations and sustainability has done more harm to attaining the set goals, especially now that the surgency has taken people out of their traditional farming communities, thereby decreasing the number of hands which are on the plow. Should there be a pronounced food shortage in Nigeria, the impact on the rest of Africa is better imagined than experienced. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nosara Toingwe for Channel Africa News. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Culture and Joy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. The time is now 17.30 Central African time. It's time for us to cross on over to the news desk for a quick update with regards to the news headlines. Here's Tracy Boomgaard. Thank you, Samora. Sudanese Rapid Support Forces and police have used tear gas to disperse dozens of protesters in the capital, Khartoum. There are serious divisions among Zimbabwe legislators over the maintenance of peace and order bill. The new bill is meant to replace the controversial Public Order and Maintenance Act. And police in Sri Lanka have declared a nationwide curfew for a second night running after one man was killed, dozens left homeless and mosques damaged in anti-Muslim riots. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. A new global health study has been launched at South Africa's University of KwaZulu-Natal under the title Achieving Control of Asthma in Children in Africa. The $2 million research project is led by the Queen Mary University of London and will be conducted in six African countries. Each country will involve about 3,000 children aged between 12 and 14 years old who have symptoms of asthma. More from Professor Rufilwe Masekela, uh, head of the Pediatrics and Child Health Department at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. 
The study as it's titled, you can see one to achieve control of asthma in children in Africa. The reason for this is that a lot of children in Africa who have asthma, firstly, do not get diagnosed with asthma, and secondly, once they diagnose with asthma, we actually have no idea about what impacts the use of medication, firstly, what sort of attitudes they have towards the disease as well as using their medication, what are the barriers that they have in terms of accessing medication and achieving asthma control. We know that from previous studies which have been done in some parts of Africa, that children in Africa who have asthma, most of them actually have severe asthma. And we also want to uncover why this is so. And we're going to, for the first time, be doing a study where we'll also be doing special testing, lung function testing, to see whether the lung function of these children is worse than in those in other countries or it's probably related to other things like exposures, for example, indoor pollution, outdoor pollution, to really try to uncover why children in Africa have more severe disease, firstly, find out what are their barriers to accessing care. Now, the study will involve thousands of children from six African countries. Why these specific countries, Ghana, Nigeria, South Africa, Uganda, Malawi and Zimbabwe? Okay. I think, firstly, this is informed by the network of research colleagues and availability of research capacity in those countries. Obviously, the golden thing would be that we'd be able to get more centers involved, but this was all because all the centers have experienced researchers who've worked in this field who would have the capacity to do this kind of study. This is also because we are doing the specialized lung function testing in the field. So we have to have people who have some experience with doing these types of research projects. So how will it be carried out? Help us understand that. Okay. So what this study will basically do, the study field workers will be going into schools. And these are children that will be in urban centers in all the different countries in Africa. And the children will be given a questionnaire to screen them to see if they have asthma. If they say, yes, I've been diagnosed with asthma by a medical practitioner, or they have symptoms that tell us that the child is asthmatic, then they will go through a process of filling out questionnaires as well as doing those specialized lung function tests. And what we're also doing, which is quite unique, is we're looking, we're asking about exposures in the environment, to try to uncover, you know, if there's anything that would exacerbate the asthma in that context. And after the study has been completed and we have some results, we're hoping then to, having looked at all these things around knowledge and attitude around asthma, then work on an intervention that would help children with asthma to be able to use their medication and have less severe asthma and be able to access treatment. That is really the goal, that after the study we'll be able to implement some sort of intervention that will improve these children's lives. You spoke about a serious burden of asthma in children on the African continent. Are we seeing the underdiagnosis of asthma compounding the control of the condition in any way? Absolutely. I think, number one, if you're asthmatic and you don't receive a diagnosis, you suffer in silence. And we know that a lot of people actually suffer for many years before somebody actually, it rings a bell that this person is probably asthmatic. Secondly, we know that in many countries, including South Africa, there's a lot of stigma 
around the diagnosis of asthma. People are scared to use their medication. There's a lot of myths around asthma. And these are some of the barriers that we know that make people to not use the treatment and have good asthma control. And thirdly, we know that in many African countries, and there's been a lot of studies that have looked at this way, we know that if you're exposed to huge traffic air pollution, indoor pollution from people who are cooking with biomass, which is things like wood, dung, etc., in poorly ventilated houses, those people will suffer more respiratory illnesses. And asthma is one of those. Do you expect your study to bridge some of the gaps to achieving good asthma control? Well, absolutely. We hope that once we've quantified the burden of the disease, we've found out about what the barriers are, we've looked at the knowledge and attitudes around asthma, that we would then be able to give or suggest country-specific interventions that would improve these children's lives. And lastly, Prof, when can we expect the results of the study? The study is going to be run over the next two and a half years because we have been funded for a three-year cycle. So we should have completed all the sites by 2021. And once any site completes their work, obviously there will be some sites will start earlier, some later. But we will then, once we have the results, we will present them at fora and meetings and we will publish the results. That was Professor Refilwa Masekela, head of the Pediatrics and Child Health Department at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa, talking to Elizabeth Lidicha. And lastly, health experts are this week gathering in Kintele in Congo, Brazzaville, for the regional consultation on the elimination of cervical cancer in Africa. Cervical cancer is the fourth, fourth most common cancer among women worldwide of the 20, uh, 20 countries globally with highest incidences of cervical cancer, 16 are African countries. For more on this issue, here's Dr. Barango Prebo of the World Health Organization. Cervical cancer is one of the most common female cancers in Africa. Although there are cost-effective methods available globally to prevent cervical cancer through vaccinating preadolinian girls with HPV vaccine to screening women that are 30 years to 49 years for the precancerous stage and those that are positive can be easily treated. These interventions are available, but in most African countries, access to this has been a challenge. So you have that globally, the 20 countries with the highest burden of cervical cancer, 19 are in Africa. Um, The Director General for WHO therefore deemed it fit that um, cervical cancer can be eliminated. So there's an cervical cancer elimination agenda which sets targets that countries can follow to make sure that cervical cancer is no longer a public health burden in African countries. To make this um, elimination agenda possible and not just a wish list, WHO has developed a global strategy to ensure that cervical cancer is eliminated. That's WHO Global. In the African region now, we are holding a regional consultation with experts from ministries of health and um, from WHO country offices, as well as partners that are working in uh, cervical cancer to sit together and look at this global strategy and provide 
a regional African input to the global strategy. That is what the purpose of the meeting is. This is the second day of the meeting. It started on Monday. What are some of the burning issues that have come out? What's being discussed? You spoke about um, how it is still a problem for many countries in Africa which have a high prevalence of cervical cancer for women to access the medical care, vaccination to prevent the disease. What are some of the arguments that are presented in terms of how the region um, better addresses the scourge? Yes, so one of the things that has come out is one, many member states, there is a lot of effort that countries are doing. There's a lot of work that is currently ongoing across all countries in the region. So we must um, acknowledge that we are not starting from zero. All the countries, all the examples that they gave showed that there's a lot of work that is ongoing. However, we um, key themes that are coming out is that for example, women between 30 to 49 years old for screening, coverage is still very low across all the countries in the region. So coverage is still very low for the women. That is one key thing that has come out. The second key thing that has come out is about the HPV vaccination for girls. How, what strategy are we going to use to ensure that every girl that is eligible for HPV vaccine gets it. There are only few countries that have rolled out HPV vaccine as a routine vaccination. Several others are doing it in terms of um, pilots, but we need to really roll out the HPV vaccination for girls. Those key things have come out. The other thing that has come out is in terms of the need to develop capacity of the health system. So pathologists, um, surgeons, to have um, access to essential medicines that can be used for cervical cancer has also come out. What about treatment for those who have cervical cancer? Can they be treated for those who may be wondering? um, We know cancer is a very scary disease. Yes, thank you. That's actually a very important question. Now, the key thing with cervical cancer is that it exists in a precarcerous stage for up to 10 years in most women without symptoms. Now, with screening, this can be easily detected and treated with low-cost effective mechanisms. That is one. So cervical cancer is treatable. The early forms of cervical cancer is treatable, and the women go on. It doesn't, pro- it doesn't progress to frank cancer. Now, for those that have early cancer that needs treatment, also we need to, they need to go and see a doctor when they have any of the early signs and symptoms. So there is need for community mobilization and sensitization on the early signs and symptoms of cervical cancer. If detected early, it is not a death sentence. It is curable. In addition, for those that come in at not very early stage, it's also treatable through surgery, through chemotherapy, and through radiotherapy. So what one of the things that we also need to do as a region is to develop our capacities of the health system, to strengthen the health system, to ensure that the capacities to diagnose, because to diagnose cancer, you need 
pathology services. So we need to strengthen the capacity to diagnose and to treat. That was Dr. Barango Prebo of the World Health Organization on the line from Kintele in Congo, Brazzaville, talking to Jane Rabutata. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa. All right, the time is now just shy of 17.45 Central African time. Let's cross on over to the money desk where Tracy Boomgard is standing by to let us know what is happening with our money and specifically with regards to an economist warning that unemployment will continue to worsen in South Africa if the government does not change its policies. Thank you, Samora. Chief Economist at Nedbank, Dennis Dykes, has warned that unemployment will continue to worsen in South Africa if the government does not change its policies and restructure the labor market. Statistics South Africa revealed an increase in the unemployment rate. It has reported that the number of unemployed people increased by 62,000 to 6.2 million in the first quarter of the year. The country's unemployment rate was recorded at 27.6% in the first quarter of this year from 27.1% in the fourth quarter of 2018. Dyke says unemployment can only be alleviated if the economy improves. I'd be very surprised if we see big improvements in employment uh, for another two quarters at least. And then hopefully we'll start making a, a dent in this very, very big mouth. The economy was pretty much in water during the course of this quarter. We had the elections still. People were still bruised from the load shedding. Again, you know, I think there's uh, probably be a bit of a wait-and-see sort of attitude. Uganda is optimistic that rising global oil prices will attract large companies and the industry to the country. The government has announced the second licensing round that will see five exploration blocks open for bidding. Uganda has 6.5 billion barrels of oil. It made its first commercial oil discovery in 2006, and to date over 121 wells have been drilled with a success rate of over 88%. South Africa's Energy Minister Jeff Khadebe says a partnership between government and the private sector is crucial in ensuring a sustainable supply of energy in the country. Khadebe addressed the 19th African Utility and Power Week in Cape Town, in his opening address, Khadebe stressed the need for government and business sector to work together in exploring opportunities to ensure that all citizens benefit from the affordable and clean energy. 
If you look at the energy sector, the partnership between government and the private sector has bought very well in the renewable sector where we talk today more than 250 billion rand of investment has now been injected into the South African economy ensuring that almost over 6,000 megawatts of electricity comes from the renewable sector indicating the important role of that partnership. A report has revealed that the Namibian government continues to fail in curbing the controversial timber trade. Agriculture and Environment Ministries officials compiled a report after investigating timber harvesting in the Kavango East, Kavango West and Zambezi regions. The report noted that around 32,000 blocks of rosewood timber from northeastern Namibia had been transported since November 2018. The CEO and CFO of India's Jet Airways has quit. This is another addition to the ailing carrier, which is heavily indebted by more than $1 billion. Last month, it suspended all operations. A collapse of jet and the loss of more than 20,000 jobs will deal a blow to Prime Minister Narendra Modi's pro-business reputation as he seeks a second term in elections ending on Sunday. The U.S. dollar is trading at 359.12 Nigerian Naira, 10.52 Botswana Pula at 99.78 Kenyan Shilling and at 12.95 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.97 Brazilian Hail, 65.33 Russian Ruble, 70.43 Indian Rupee, 6.90 Chinese Yuan and at 14.28 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 76 pence to the British pound and at 89 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is trading at $1,299 and platinum at $860 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $69.94 a barrel. For Channel African News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. Seventeen fifty. Let's cross on over to the sports desk, where Neto Chiman is standing by to give us our latest sporting news. Thank you, Samara. A very good afternoon to all sport fans. Kassel has launched a South African supporters jersey to encourage South Africans to stand behind the top three national teams as they participate in world and continental tournaments this year. South Africa's national football team will compete at the 2019 Africa Cup of Nations tournament in Egypt next month. The cricket team will be jetting out this weekend to participate at the Cricket World Cup in England and Wales, while the Springboks will head to Japan for the Rugby World Cup in September. Vagan Cruiser is Casa Laga's marketing manager and speaks about the significance of this jersey. Casa Laga has been a very proud sponsor of our three national teams over many, many decades. And this year was such a special year with our teams playing in significant tournaments. And as a beer brand, um, our role is to, to help the fans celebrate and get the fans behind the teams. So our idea was to create this supporters jersey that unifies the country behind the three national teams. 
The jersey will be available countrywide tomorrow on May the 15th. Consumers can get their hands on the jersey by simply purchasing a Castle Lager beer. Sebastian Migne, head coach of Kenya's men's national football team, has stuck to most of his guns that did duty for him in the qualifying process as the Frenchman named his provisional squad for the 2019 Africa Cup of Nations tournament taking place in Egypt next month. Harambistas will head to France and camp for three weeks to compete in two friendlies against Madagascar and Gambia ahead of the continental showpiece. Stars are in Group C alongside Senegal, Algeria and Tanzania. The tournament runs from June the 21st to July the 19th. On to athletics news. The IAAF World Relays held in Yokohama in Japan this past weekend had a fairy tale of disqualifications including teams from Nigeria, Zimbabwe, Kenya, the USA, Jamaica and Australia. South Africa were let down by a poor but on a changeover while Uganda were not up to the right standard. Our correspondent Gesham Nyati reports. The disqualifications was a nightmare and bitter lesson for the relay teams on this fourth edition of the World Relays. Zimbabwe was the first team to be shown the red card in the second heat of the men's 4 by 100 meters. Nigeria was next in the third heat. Kenya became victims in the 2 by 2 and 400 meters mixed relay. In all the instances, the teams were penalized and disqualified for lane infringement. South Africa spoiled their show with a poor button changeover between Erasmus and Simon Mahakwe, which let them down in the 4 by 100 meters. Uganda had no errors in their changeover, but they did not have the speed to challenge for a podium place. In boxing news, the 2018 Boxing South Africa Awards will take place this Friday on May the 17th at the Santin Convention Center in Johannesburg. This year's award ceremony is going to be different to the past two editions as BSA in partnership with Gauden Department of Sport, Arts and Culture will amplify the night's program with a pre-awards boxing tournament comprised of four exhibition bouts. Here is CEO of Boxing South Africa, Tsolofelo Lejaka. There are a total of 15 categories which are open for public nomination and the two other categories that become 16 and 17, special recognition as well as uh, lifetime achievement. Now the principle because of the limited resources that we have is that where there is uh, athletes, in this case boxers, there is a 15,000 rand monetary reward uh, as well as the power of three trophy and then all nominees we give them boxing awards blazers of the specific year for which they've been nominated finally in tennis news South Africans are pinning their hopes on wheelchair tennis South Africa, WTSA team to bring home silverware from the prestigious BNP Paribas World Team Cup in Israel. Represented by three teams of men's, women and quads, SA got off to a great start yesterday when the women's team defeated Colombia 2-1 in the first tie but lost their doubles rubber for 6-6-3-4-10. Individually, Mariska Fenter got the ball rolling by easing past Colombia's Johanna Martinez 6 262. World number six ranked Khotadza Monjani had a tougher time against Angelica Penal but still pulled through to claim a 6-3-7-5 win. Monjani reflects on their triumphs. Me, me and Maruska, you know, I think we've done such a good effort. You know, we, we knew how important the first match was so it was really important for us to come through and win, a, and win our first match. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and ETO Chamani.
This is Africa Digest. And so we draw the first hour of Africa Digest to a close. Be sure to join us again later on in the evening from 1900 hours Central African time. So from myself, Samora Mangesi, producer Leanna Maume, technical producer Evelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you so much for listening.